So I think what we've seen is a partisan country with a narcissistic president and a massive amount of what he himself would call fake news, but emanating, emanating from the Rose Garden and the Oval Office, unfortunately. As part of our response to the COVID-19 pandemic, we're running a series of discussions with experts about some of the big issues arising from this outbreak. In this one, we're talking about the public health response to a pandemic. What's necessary and is it possible to go too far? Joining us are remotely, are Martin McKee, Professor of European Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Hi, Martin. Hi. Kathleen Bakinski, who's Assistant Professor of Public Health at Muhlenberg College. Uh, Kathleen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And we also have Sridhar Venkatapuram, who's Associate Professor of Global Health and Philosophy at King's College London. Sridhar, again, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, so, if we, we start with that public health response, it was on the 31st of December that China declared its first case. On the 30th of January, WHO then declared a public health emergency of international concern, the official warning sign. And already at that time, countries in East Asia, especially those ones who had experienced SARS, were swinging into action. But very little happened in the UK and in the US. And it wasn't really until the WHO used the word pandemic on the 11th of March that the media and then subsequently governments really seemed to start to take this more seriously. That kind of maybe sums up uh, public health in our current administrations in the UK and the US. Um, perhaps, Kathleen, I could come to you first. Uh, what do you think about um the speed of that initial response? Well, certainly from a U.S. perspective, I think it's been far too slow. And I think two of the, the biggest failures, there's certainly been others, but uh, two of the real missed opportunities, I think, were uh, stockpiling sufficient personal protective equipment, especially for healthcare workers in the United States, as well as um, failing to ramp up testing. So we did not get uh, large-scale testing. And in fact, in many ways, we still don't have it in the United States. So it's made it very difficult to adequately track and get a sufficient picture of the spread of the virus in the country. Mm, absolutely. And testing is a, is a, a key thing that the WHO has recommended um, that, that both the UK and the US haven't done. Um, perhaps, Rita, I, I should come to you at this point. Um it seems like, you know, there were many warning signs uh, about what was going on and, and those countries in East Asia swung into action. Um, do you think, I, I suppose I get the sense that that's because their, their public and their politicians were primed to worry about uh, an emergency like this. Um, but it just seems that, that we don't really take it nearly as seriously over here. 
Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. Um, so my response to that is that um, there's you know potential. There's two aspects to it. One is that an outbreak is a localized event, and so what you hope is that the outbreak is contained locally, uh, and so there is no reason to think that. Uh, you know, if you don't control the outbreak, uh, or the, if you do control the outbreak, that it would go very far, or it goes to the other side of the world. And so every year, there's lots of outbreaks, uh, and we monitor them. And there's a very, you know, I don't know to what extent uh, people would agree, but there is an existing system that monitors outbreaks all over the world. And the WHO is monitoring that. So in this particular case, what we have is that the outbreak was in China. And so it makes sense that the nearby countries would be the ones that are the most likely to respond quickly with their policies. Now, the idea that the UK and the US were slower is, I think, um, it, it, it doesn't it, it doesn't seem right to me in a couple of ways. One is that uh, there was a meeting in the middle of February of global experts that were called to Geneva to address uh, this uh, outbreak, this pan epidemic, and whether it be called a pandemic. And most of those experts will more than likely be from the UK and the US. Um, so the question really here is, were the people who knew about what this was uh, sort of happening and what the threat was, were they able to influence and have the ears of the politicians and policymakers to, you know, so to be prepared? Um, and so I think that's really kind of the kind of, kind of the weakest link here. Uh, and we've seen in the U.S. that there was actually a warning system. People were saying it in December and January. The people that should have been in post were not. Um, and so the system itself couldn't be run. And then we also have seen actually the hijacking of the scientific and public health apparatus by politicians. Um, and so they're the ones who are deciding on policy. So, um, yeah, so there's more to say, but let me just stop there. I was going to say, well, uh, at this time, uh, Martin, you've been you've been critical of the response. So uh, would you agree with uh, Srida? Well, I've actually tried not to be critical of the response up until now because I do concede that it has been very difficult for those who have been involved in doing it, like the chief medical officer. But that said, I think that there are a number of things that we need to look at when we do have the eventual inquiry into this. First of all, we need to find out more about why the United Kingdom failed to learn the lessons from Exercise Cygnus, which was a, a large exercise a simulation that was undertaken in 2016. Now, we know very little about this, but we have had some mention from the former chief medical officer of how it showed that the United Kingdom uh, would face serious problems, in particular due to uh, problems of a capacity in the NHS, shortage of ventilators, shortages of protective equipment. So that's the first point. Why did we not learn those lessons? Secondly, I think there was a degree of complacency after SARS because it didn't actually spread to be a global pandemic. It was controlled earlier. And if you look at the British government's preparedness plans, they were entirely focused on pandemic influenza. Also, when you looked at the models that were being developed by the Imperial College team and others, they were using parameters that were related to influenza. So I think there was a sort of group think there. 
And linked um, linked to that, I think uh, the third point I would make is that the group of people, the people who were advising the government were actually a fairly narrow group in terms of disciplines, um, predominantly uh, behavioural economists and modellers. And uh, there certainly is a view that they would have benefited more from having some strong traditional public health advice in there. But there are two other big political issues that we can't ignore in this. And the fourth point uh, I think we need to make is that we are in a country that has been suffering from a decade of austerity. We've had severe cutbacks to the NHS and particularly the public health function, which was weakened both by financial cuts and by a catastrophic uh, disorganisation in the 2012 Health and Social Care Act. And I suspect that there was a degree of fatalism among those involved who said, well, you know, maybe we would like to do lots of things like contact tracing and uh, clamping down whenever cases were, uh, were, were found. But there was a feeling that actually we, we know we can't do it. We don't have the capacity. And the final point, which I'm afraid not many people have been discussing except uh, in, in private probably more, is that we have to remember that for the last three years, the British government has been quite dysfunctional, uh, the organs of the uh, systems of government, because about 75-80% of the effort of the civil service has been focused on the uh, decision to leave the European Union, planning for no-deal Brexit, and so on and so forth, and linked to that the uh, fact that uh, British officials and ministers were not engaged in discussions with their European colleagues, who, whenever this eventually happened in a call with the uh, G7, uh, where they spoke to some other European governments, uh, I think the realisation dawned that, in fact, there were problems. So that, that degree of social isolation from Europe did not help. And, of course, that has also come to the fore in terms of our exclusion from the joint procurement in- initiative and all the other things that have been done at a European Union level. So I think there are five things there that I would pick up. To, to add on to this as well, but just one aspect of the United States political system that I think is also strongly affecting our response is that a lot of the public health policy and and decision-making power lies in the United States at the state and local level rather than at the federal level. So not only are we in many ways lacking uh, consistent uh, coordinated messaging and response at the federal level, but we also have a rather uh, piecemeal or patchwork response where some states are uh, moving towards much stronger social distancing policies as compared to others. Uh, So there isn't one sort of single consistent response across the United States, which I also think is really affecting uh, the nature of our response in this country. Um, Martin there talked about the uh, the questions that he would like to, or that might be asked, uh, you know, after the fact. Um, Do you have any any equivalent questions um, from your side from from the US that you think uh, will need to be answered? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I certainly think uh, there will be a lot of questions about, at the the federal level, the uh, move to disband a pandemic response team uh, several years prior. Uh, There will also be questions about uh, the failure to stockpile sufficient uh, personal protective equipment. Uh, There had been a stockpile that largely uh, diminished with the H1N1 Uh, flew in 2009, and then there was a failure to replenish uh, that stockpile. And I also think there will need to be uh, an investigation in terms of the testing as well. There was a sort of 
rollout of a test that wasn't very good, uh, and then a lot of other failures in terms of trying to scale up testing that I think will need to be looked into. Hmm. Uh, Martin, do you want to respond to that? No, I, I think there are a whole series of issues. I, I agree entirely. Uh, I mean, looking at the United States, we do have to remember that it does come back to the president. I can't remember which previous president it was but who said the buck stops here. I had a sign on his desk in the Oval Office. Uh, but that is clearly not the case with this president who has blamed everybody else but himself. And we have, we're now, I think, seeing the results of creating a deeply dysfunctional administration, and uh, that's been described by Bob Woodward and others, uh, as uh, where uh, no one trusts one another, in fact, where officials try to keep things away from the president. And when he's let out unsupervised, then uh, we can see that all sorts of incoherent statements come out. But more importantly, the, his decision to remove a number of people from key posts uh, there were scientists who were in Wuhan, who were in the Chinese Centers for Disease Control in Beijing, the pandemic, uh, the per people with pa responsibility for pandemic planning in the White House. All of these posts went in the few months before the pandemic. And the difficulty then arises when you have an individual who has such a, a profound narcissistic personality, who sees everything as a conspiracy against him. And certainly in the early messaging, uh, when he was trying to play down all of this, he uh, presented the coronavirus uh, and the uh, discussion around it as not being as, as a hoax, in fact, as fake news and being used to stir up opposition to him. But probably more worrying than that was the way in which Fox News was then amplifying that message. And we do have good research from other studies showing that Fox News is very influential. We also saw an article in the New York Times a week or two ago, which looked at the uh, partisan nature of the response to coronavirus. And uh, it looked state by state at people at, and asked people if they thought that it was a serious threat. Uh, and then segregated them by by Democrats or Republicans, and there was no overlap whatsoever. Essentially, uh, a majority of Democrats everywhere did see this as a serious threat, but it was a minority of Republicans, and that was backed up by other really fascinating research looking at uh, counties, precincts, where people had voted in a majority for Donald Trump, and showed that in those ones, the uh, rate of searches on Google for hand sanitizers was much lower than in areas where people had voted uh, Democrat. So uh, I think what we've seen is a partisan country with a narcissistic president and a massive amount of what he himself would call fake news, but emanating, emanating from the Rose Garden and the Oval Office, unfortunately. Mm. Um, Sridhar, can we come to, to, to you here? I mean, what Martin and Kathleen have been talking about, and I suppose you mentioned at the beginning, was this kind of I don't know, deprofessionalization or, or moving away from, from experts um, actually being uh, in, in charge. Um, we're talking here about uh, a pandemic response, but this seems um, to be in, in public health in, in general. Yeah, so I think the this conversation I think is interesting because it's focusing very much on the UK and US. Um, and so, and both of these cases 
or countries are quite uh, interesting in themselves, but also together, right? So because we have issues around political leadership and legitimacy and a divided country and uh, and the different kinds of history of economic policies over the last decades or so. The role of expertise is really interesting because, you know, the the in, what I find interesting is that in the UK, you know, so before you had asked the question about why was the response so late to get started, but then once it started, why was it so horrible or why has it been a failure? And I think Martin has, uh, has sort of really identified the issues. I mean, one of the things that I want to point out is that experts were involved in the beginning, right? So the modelers, this has been somehow the, the, the week or months or the year of the, of the epi modeler or the mathematic modeler. And I think that there are lots of issues to be thought about there in terms of how did uh, these modelers come to gain such kind of prominence in this conversation. And also they've actually failed in their ability to think about the social implications of how they present their models and what the different kinds of ways that they uh, presented it. I personally, you know, have tried to engage with these modelers, you know, a few years ago and said, you know, let's talk about ethics and let's just talk about what are the different implications. And they said, no, no, we just do maths. We don't really do all that kind of stuff. And I think that this played great into the political environment um, where, you know, politicians were needing to uh, sort of, they like, you know, politicians, as we know, like the evidence that they like. It's not necessarily that somehow evidence will dominate their prior opinions. Um, and so this is a real failure on the experts' part as well in terms of not being able to really understand their role or their place in, in the politics. But overall, I think that uh, everyone is right in the sense that there is undoubtedly across the board a low understanding and investment in public health and public health infrastructure and expertise. Uh, right now, I see it in my world where I work in ethics. And, you know, even after sort of a decade or two decades of talking about the difference between clinical ethics versus public health ethics, over and all, the American conversation has been, oh, this is about who lives or dies in the clinic. And it's not. It's about the political choices that are being made. It's about the trade between the economy and health and so forth. Um, and so even there, there is uh, there is a role for experts in different fields. Um, but I think that we, we also have a lot more complicated situation where experts seem to think that they just present the facts and then they can sort of uh, walk away from it. I think this is a real test for whatever experts are in place, what sort of role do they have and how do they deal with the situation. And I think Fauci is a very good example in which he He's really balancing his expertise with the political environment he's in, and he's trying his best to ensure the facts. I think a lot of other experts are doing that, but some, I think, experts are failing. Uh, I would really, I mean, want to point out the same thing that Martin has said, is that there were a very narrow group of people in the UK policymaking in the beginning. I think it's really profoundly unethical for people who do not have expertise in various to overreach their domains, but also not to point out that there's actually actually other experts who should be at the table. Uh, there's a real uh, issue here around expertise and power and what happens when uh, these sort of experts come close to power and what happens to their reasoning and objectivity and, and, and sort of uh, their integrity around the table. Mm. I mean, that's uh, that's uh, a very uh, 
profound thing to, for people to think about, I suppose. And um, I mean, that does come on to, to the second part of what we wanted to talk about, which is that balance of, you know, a purely public health response about uh, reducing the spread of the virus and a much more kind of all country, um, whole government response. Um now, Kathleen, you're you're working in in the the US in uh, in public health, and and the response there um, at the moment from the president is very much around maintaining or trying to maintain the economy. Um, it, it feels like you have skewed uh, particularly in one direction, and the balance is is perhaps missing at the moment. There's been this this framing of public health versus the economy, which I think is a very poor way to frame this. Um, the, a lot of the message from politicians and language even on, on Fox News and other sorts of, of media outlets has been along the lines of, well, we have to preserve the economy or we don't, we don't want to, to quote unquote, make the mistake of, um, you know, having the cure be worse than the disease was the phrase that was used. Uh, and that, that framing suggests that public health measures will, will tank the economy and the reality is if you don't protect public health, you are going to tank the economy. So I think it's been sort of presented as this, this false dichotomy. Um, whereas from my point of view, even if the priority is the economy, you absolutely have to act to prioritize public health and protect human life because you are not going to have much of an economy if your workers are sick and people don't feel safe to go out and make purchases and, and partake in public life. Hmm. Martin, it seems like uh, Europe's been quite a, a headedness. They're they're doing much more than perhaps uh, we in the UK and not some all countries, but some countries are doing more. Um, is there a European perspective here that's interesting? Uh, well, there is, uh, and of course, um, I think in uh, many European countries, compared to the United States, especially, but to some extent, the United Kingdom, there is a recognition that government has a role to play in protecting its population. I mean, of course, it does in terms of having defence forces. You know, we talk about stockpiling, but nobody has uh, mentioned the vast amount of money that we uh, spend in stockpiling nuclear weapons for an even more remote possibility than the uh, than a pandemic. Uh, so that, I think, is part of it, that there is an expectation that the government will be there when you need it, uh, that you don't see that in the United States to the same extent. And if you look at the response to Hurricane Katrina a number of years ago, uh, that was very clear. Um, but I would like to maybe come back a little bit to this point about the economy, because as um, as Kathleen was saying, it has been very much represented as either public health or the economy. But there's a very important paper that has just come out of MIT about two days ago, which looked at what happened after the 1918 influenza pandemic. And it showed that the uh, it looked at 43 uh, cities in the United States, and it correlated the their subsequent economic recovery with the measures they took. And it found that those cities that implemented shutdowns and restrictions and movement earlier and kept them for longer actually recovered much more than those that did not. And it's incredibly important that uh, you it's the, the, the economic damage is done by the pandemic, not so much by the shutdown. Uh, and even if we do have a shutdown, of course, it's going to be very, very difficult for many people but there is a lot that can be done and now eventually we are seeing that and I think we have to congratulate 
congratulate in the United Kingdom, congratulate the Chancellor of the Exchequer for putting in place a large number of measures which will tide people over, even if imperfect. But of course, we already had seen those in France, in Denmark, uh, a number of other countries where the government was willing to step in much more. Uh, We also see that just in terms of the willingness of governments to move in to support their citizens when they're uh, marooned abroad. And we've now got an announcement that the United Kingdom government will charter flights to get people back from elsewhere. It already had done it in Wuhan, uh, but very little else. But you know, but even before it made its decision, the German government had, I think, 160 flights uh, from different parts of the world to bring its citizens back. So there is a different view in different countries about the role of government. And I think in some of the um, Anglo-Saxon countries, the English-speaking countries, there has been a tendency to uh, reject the idea of, you know, or see big government as a problem, especially in the United States, where, you know, remember, polling traditionally shows that a significant number of people would actually be willing to take up arms against the federal government, whereas in Europe, there is much more of an acceptance that the government is there to protect you and is not actually some sort of an enemy. Mm. And Sridhar, do you have uh, anything to add? Um, so I think the economy versus uh, health is not just an American dichotomy. I believe that this was actually what the reasoning was early on in the UK, and that's why they did not implement the strict lockdown policies immediately. I had thought that it was about the uncertainty of the pandemic uh, and the uncertainty of the impact, but I think that it was actually a bit more insidious, which is that they actually were presented, and I'm, I'm talking about the cabinet or the special advisors, the prime minister, the prime minister himself, were presented with the implications of this. And then they actually started to balance this idea of, well, so how many people will die versus what will the impact be on the economy? How can we sort of keep it going? And so that um, balancing trade-off was happening in the UK as much as it was happening in the US. In the US, it was sort of, you know, a very blatant and very sort of upfront conversation, and but in the UK, it was much more hidden. The, the thing about in both of these two countries versus, I think, a European perspective is that, you know, the entire conversation about society and the government isn't just about the economy. It's about lots of other domains. So we're not just shutting down the economy. We're also shutting down education. We're also shutting down entertainment. We're also shutting down religion. We're also shutting down so many other things. And I think that in a European perspective, they recognize all of those things are actually being sort of constrained in order to protect the social health and not just the individuals sort of doing it. They're actually doing it from a much more sort of social perspective. In the UK and US, I think that we have a very different idea is that so the economy is really important and then it's all about how individuals uh, should be protecting it. So there's, you know, a growing sense now, I think, over the last week that actually we should be protecting each other and social uh, notions. And now, as a, speaking as an American, I know that this is a completely foreign language to most Americans. Um, and so, you know, the idea that it, this this idea of what is public health is not clear, the idea of social solidarity and, and sort of taking actions, not just to protect yourself, but to protect your neighbors and your community, I think is is sort of something that's very hard. And also, if you do talk like that, then you are way left of even the Democrats who are way left. Uh, and so that gets you into trouble. So I think there's definitely 
a question about social values here in terms of how the the issue is being framed and the more it's being framed as sort of public health versus the economy um, I think reflects a particular kind of social values that are at play. I strongly agree with that and I think uh the nature of the actions that are required by social distancing that can be so profoundly disruptive, for example, not being able to have a funeral in person for a loved one who's passed away, having children home at school from school for you know weeks or months, that the actions are so so challenging in individual lives that they are profoundly dependent on trust uh, in the officials asking one to take those actions and, and so profoundly dependent on those values of understanding why these actions are ne necessary to protect the people around you, that anything to erode that public trust in either government officials or in public health authorities is a real concern for our ability to respond. Hmm. And it seems like a lot is changing at the moment. Um, you know, the government can cancel all the NHS debt and you wonder why that had not been done before. Um, healthcare systems are going to be hugely changed by this. Um, Martin, what do you think some of the key things as this goes on for the next year, perhaps 18 months of, of going in and out of lockdown, um, what do you think some of the key things we need to start thinking about now are? Well, first of all, we need to be thinking about people who are, and we use the word locked down, but of course, in relatively few countries are people being locked down, but they are uh, being asked with various degrees of compulsion to limit their movement. We need to think about people with mental health problems, older people, and in particular, people in institutions like care homes and prisons and so on. So there's an immediate issue around that. But we also need to be very clear that we need to support particularly small and medium enterprises. The United Kingdom is uh, certainly attempting to do that, but to make sure that companies are ready whenever they are able to move out of these restrictions and they're not going to be saddled with debt and with all sorts of problems. You know, there are some businesses that are going to be very seriously affected because they have seasonal produce like nurseries for garden products and things like that. And uh, we need to think almost sector by sector about how we're going to deal with that. But the third area where I think we need to start thinking about already is to recognise that not everybody is in the side of the angels in all of this. And we've already seen uh, many reports of uh, people trying to scam vulnerable individuals, online uh, attempts to get money out of them and so on and so forth. And uh, there are people who are waiting in the wings, people who are already speculating on the stock market and making an absolute fortune, including some politicians who have some questions to answer about their possible use of uh, insider information. And of course, while they're getting rich, that money has to come from somewhere. And much of it is coming from the pension funds of um, often older, vulnerable people who have trusted the institutions with that. So we need to look at that sort of thing. And in particular, we need to learn from the what has been described uh, as the, the shock doctrine by Naomi Klein, the people who will sweep in at the end of all of this and try to, to buy up distressed assets, as they did. Uh, they've done that in a number of other crises. 
uh, particularly after the Asian tsunami. And uh, they will be, you know, they're storing up lots of cash. Uh, they will be taking advantage of vulnerable people. And the danger is that we could have these essentially vultures uh, sitting in the side, just waiting to pick up the pieces if we don't do something to anticipate and to protect our societies from them. Mm. So it's interesting that you didn't um, mention sort of public health there. You think it's all about the, the wider things in society that will um, will really matter at this point. Yeah, well, I didn't say that simply because I think it's self-evident <laughs> and it would be, uh, you know, one would like to think that after all of this, the uh, population in particular, we're talking a lot about the United Kingdom and the United States, but we have to remember, in fact, this is a global problem because with a pandemic, the world, every country is as vulnerable as the weakest link in all of this. And, and this is something we haven't yet discussed. You know, what do we do about countries that are failing to respond to this and could continue to seed out infection over a longer period of time? But public health, I said earlier, has been weakened greatly in the United Kingdom. It also has been in the United States. Um, some countries have learned the lessons, for example, from SARS and Canada and others, uh, but in many countries it really does need to be strengthened greatly. So I just take that for granted almost. Mm. Um, uh, Sridhar, maybe I should come to you and ask the, the same thing. What do you think uh, we need to be looking out now for? So, I mean, that's a that's a great question. And I hope, I mean, this is a, the first of our conversations. I hope we have more and we can sort of uh, pick some more apart. But right now, I think that the way that I would answer your question is that what's concerning me right now is that there are thousands of people that are dying in hospitals. And there is going to be uh, a very strong... Uh, once the recognition of the scales of the deaths and the suffering that has been going on, because this is a very quick acting, right? So it's a 18 day kind of cycle of people who get infected and severe and then, then die. And we are now talking about thousands of people and in the US potentially hundreds of thousands. And then we know that other societies will have even potentially more. There's going to be a really, I think, uh, a lot of important decisions to be made. I think a lot of politicians and policymakers will try to hide the numbers. But I think it's really important out of respect, both for those people who have died and who are dying, but also it is really important for social cohesion for us to really recognize what is happening and the trauma that uh, is currently happening and will occur when hundreds of thousands of people suddenly die within a space of a few weeks or months. So I think that's really something that we should have to keep an eye on and sort of really think about not just about, you know, how, who do we give care to, but actually what's, you know, what do we do when we recognize there's, there's so many deaths in such a short uh, space of time while everybody is watching. So that would be number one. The second thing is that I think that, you know, aside from the failure of so many governments, including the UK and the US and dealing with this well, I will see, I will see the similar kind of failures happening in the exit strategy to Today's headlines were all about, oh, we need an exit strategy. Uh, and so it's very optimistic and hopeful. But what you'll see is also uh, very bad policy. So this idea of like, oh, we're going to create a special certificate for people who are immune so that they can go around. And so I can, you can just imagine what sort of different kinds of divisions that will cost and what kind of uh, harm and, and violence that might actually sort of, uh, sort of result in. So we need to really be careful and engage with any kind of exit policies and see what people are thinking about because I have no confidence that they'll somehow profoundly be of a different quality than they had than the policies that were implemented in the start. The third thing 
is that I think uh, what Martin was speaking to and other people speaking to is that crises, and I've seen many crises in terms of whether it be September 11th or the 2008 crash, is that crises are often when people and institutions consolidate their power uh, and then they sort of essentially get rid of people and policies that they don't like. And we're seeing this all over the world. Uh, and in the UK, you might see that, oh, we're going to sort of now flood uh, you know, the NHS with money or we're going to sort of get rid of debt. That isn't happening. What else is happening is that lots of other people are also consolidating their positions in power. And so we really need to think about what's going on, who's doing what, and pay attention to that. The, the last thing is leadership, right? So where where is the leadership for the world that we want to build after this or through this? Who are the people that are going to sort of lead us? And I don't see anyone in the UK or the US at the moment. Um, and so we really have to think about sort of, you know, how do we sort of create the voices that are going to be able to either advocate for public health in the future, but also just better social policies and better politics. I mean, I would, I would just echo, I, I very much agree, I would echo many of those points. I think in particular, the point about transparency is very well taken. Uh, transparency about many things, about the reality of the, the trauma and, and suffering, uh, and also the reality that this is, we are in this for the long haul, um, and that in the absence of a vaccine, this is not, which will take at a minimum, absolute minimum, 12 to 18 months, uh, we are going to have to make some really difficult decisions. So the importance of leaders who are transparent about that is, I think, going to be incredibly important. And I also think um, the transparency about the fact that some of these decisions are going to have to be made with uncertain data, to be very honest about what we still don't know about this virus. We don't know the extent to which there might be, you know, temperature, seasonal effects, or all kinds of other aspects of, of the transmission, that there's still a lot about this we don't know. And we will need for deci decision makers, for leaders to be very transparent about what evidence they are making decisions on, and also what we still don't know yet, what are areas of uncertainty. And I think that's profoundly important for public trust, um, to, to both trust the data that is there, but also to trust that, that leaders are not um, making decisions based on, you know, claims or extensions of data that we don't actually have. And then I guess the last point I would add, which again is echoing many of the points that have already been made, is that uh, the, the sort of intense lockdown or intense social distancing is absolutely necessary right now to delay the spread of this virus, but we also have to be making the best use possible of the time that we're buying for ourselves because it, it does have profound costs, not just economic, but, but social costs. And so we should be using these kinds of intensive lockdown measures sparingly as much as we can and also as strategically as we can so that we can use, once we gather better data and have more widespread testing, um, use a more nuanced approach and be doing that as transparently as we can. You've been listening to Martin McKee, Catherine Baranski and Sridhar Venkatapuram talk about the public health response to COVID-19. Now, as Sridhar said, we are going to be doing more of these in the future. So if you have anything that you would like us to discuss, then go to bmj.com slash podcasts where you can find out how to get in touch. You should also subscribe if you've got this far and you haven't done so. 
We're available on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or pretty much wherever else you get your podcasts from. Now, for more of the BMJ's COVID-19 coverage, which is all available for free, have a look at bmj.com slash coronavirus, or one word. There you'll find uh, some practical advice as well as opinion from many people about what to do in this emergency. We'll be back next week with more talk evidence, more well-being, and another one of these discussions. So until then, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.